Saying low, Apple Music. Album anniversaries are important things because, you know, when you get that five, 10 year anniversary as an artist, you get to really take a step back and figure out whether or not the body of work that you put so much into has stood the test of time and means something to people, means something to their lives, not just in the moment when it's out, but in the sense that we've carried it with us throughout our lives and we want to celebrate it when the milestone arrives. So imagine what it's like when you make an album 50 years ago and people still want to celebrate that record. It's just an incredible achievement. And I'm talking about the album start to finish. It is a flawless collection of songs that were made under very challenging times personally for the members of Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. All four members coming together to make their second album at the dawn of the 1970s after what was, and we talk about this in the conversation, a very disappointing end to a very hopeful decade. The album was released originally in 1969, so to call it a 50-year anniversary is a little bit of a Caesar celebration, but it doesn't really matter. What matters is there's a whole lot more music, outtakes, demos, and ideas that surrounded the finished result that became Deja Vu, and now it's all been made available, as are the members of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, but sadly not young. So what you're going to hear right now over the course of this podcast is a conversation done in three separate sittings with Graham Nash, Stephen Stills, and David Crosby, discussing the ins and outs of the making of the album Deja Vu, and whatever else we can get into the finite restrictions of space and time. Welcome to the interview series. Thanks for joining us. Graham, do you remember, I'm sure people have asked you this before, but I'm dying to know what the temperature was like, what time it was, what the feeling was in the room when you wrote that song. I mean, I think songs really capture memories for us. And I'd love to know what your immediate memory of, of, of capturing this, this timeless moment is for you. I was having uh, breakfast at uh, Arts Deli on Ventura Boulevard in Los Angeles with Joni one morning. It was like spring of 69. We had finished breakfast and we were walking back to uh, to Joan's car. It was a miserable day. It was rainy and cold and like foggy kind of thing. But at, on the way to the car, we passed an antique store, and of, of course, we're curious as to what you know what lovely things are in an antique store. So Joni and I were looking in the window, and she saw a vase that she wanted to buy, maybe. 10 inches high, uh, some hand-painted flowers around the edge, about, about, about yay high. And so Joni bought it. And so, as I said, it was a miserable day. We got in Joan's car and, and drove uh, down to our house in, in, in Laurel Canyon. And we got through the front door of, of Joan's house, and I said, Hey, Joan, why don't uh, I light a fire and, uh, and you put some flowers in that vase that you just bought today? Well, I'm a writer. No, and therefore, I, I was halfway through a new song. Uh, and, and John went out into the garden to pick a few kind of spring early flowers and kind of, you know, she, she, so she wasn't at her piano. That means that I was. And our house was written in about an hour and a half. And therein lies a lesson in songwriting from one of the greatest to ever do it. Graham Nash, you know, pulling apart the beautiful natural observations that occur in everyday life and being able to turn into something you can share with us. That is the beauty of music, right? Through the challenge and the triumph, these these observations are right in front of us. Just songwriters choose to collect them. I'm the same as you, you know. I see beauty everywhere, you know. Um, I'm a very curious person. I, I love being alive and I, I love these ordinary moments. 
And that's what that was. That was an ordinary moment that I turned into a song that has touched people's hearts for over years. And as a songwriter, that's incredible. That's just incredible. You know, some, you know when, when people call me from all over the world and say they heard our house on the radio in Italy or in Kathmandu in, in Nepal, it, it's a thrill as a writer to get messages like that. We don't celebrate the ordinary enough in life. We are celebrating somewhat of a 50th anniversary, but what we're really doing is, is we're, we're diving really deep into the world of deja vu. I mean, very, very deep now, pulling all of the files off the shelf and sharing them with the world. And in one particular moment with our house, you've got this version now with you and Joni singing it. And this hasn't been shared before. How do you sit on this for 50 years? I don't know how you do it. You're talking about the version of our house with me and Joni playing four hands on one piano, right? And her singing with me. Um, we make a mistake in the middle of it, and I say, oh, sh-. you know, I, I mean, I swear on the thing. So the thing is that normally you would never put out something like that. You would put out the real record of it, you know? With the 51 years that people have loved this album, we, I, I thought that we, we need to put something on there that, that they, they would never expect. And normally, I would never put that out. You know, it was a personal thing between Joan and I, but I really wanted to share it because it is a very interesting moment, particularly because of that song, which I wrote for her, you know. So it was a, a moment that I'll never forget. I mean, I still, I still remember her sitting next to me playing that song. It was thrilling for me. I mean, I'm a huge Joni Mitchell fan. Who the hell isn't, you know, that knows anything about music? I mean, yes, we were living together. We were boyfriend and girlfriend. Yes, I know all that. But it's still Joni Mitchell. It's not just, you know, my girlfriend or her boyfriend. You know, it's Joan, for God's sake, one of the geniuses of music. I think about this album, I think about four, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cast that observation back towards you now, so put your humble hat on, four geniuses in your own right coming together and making this album, which 51 years on just remains such a deep human experience, a very human experience. I mean, all the shades of being human wrapped up into this one album. When you first met the others in the band, when you first came across your, you know, the people who have gone on to become lifelong friends for all the ups and all the downs, I want to know your first impressions. If you can remember your first impression of Stephen Stills when you first met him and whether it stayed true throughout your life spent together. I'd known David uh, Crosby for a couple of years by that time. He was in England with the birds and uh, they were getting trashed in in the press because somebody had said that they were America's Beatles. And of course, that doesn't sit very well with English people. Crosby said to me one day, he said, Peter Talks having a, a party up in on his house on, on Mulholland. Do you, do you want to come? I, I want to introduce you to somebody. And I said, David, fine, sure. I was just there, you know, what? He said, come on up, we'll go on up. So we went up to Peter Talks' house. We knocked on the front door and the door opened and this incredible cloud of smoke <laughs> came, came out, out of the living room. And there was this music going on, this like Brazilian kind of hard-edged, great groove on the piano. And I, I walked over to this kid and looked at him playing the piano and Crosby nudged me. He said, that's who I want you to meet. That's Stephen Stills. That's the first day I met Stephen. He was playing great piano. He had great music in his 
people and I knew it. And, you know, later on, I had, uh, I had left London to, uh, to be with Joan for about three days. And I pulled up in front of her house in Laurel Canyon in a cab in a yellow taxi. And I heard other people's voices. And I thought, wow. I just wanted to spend some time with Joan, who, who would, but there's other voices. So I knocked on the door and she opened the door and it was David and Stephen. They were having dinner with Joan. And we got through dinner, you know, I must confess, we smoked a big one. And David said to Stephen, he said, hey, Stephen, play Willie that song. And they had been trying to get a, a duo act together. The Buffalo Springfield had broken up. David had been thrown out of the birds. They wanted to get a little two-part harmony, kind of Everly Brothers kind of thing going. And so they sang the song of Stevens. It was called You Don't Have to Cry, which ended up on the first record. They got to the end of it, and I, I looked at Stephen. I said, that's an incredible song, Stephen. That's really a beautiful song. Do me a favor and um, sing it one more time. And they looked at each other and shrugged. And they sang it one more time. They got to the end of it and I said, okay, all right, I'm English. Forget it. Do it one more time, please. One, one more time. In those three playings of that song, I had learned my harmony. I'd learned the words. I learned how Crosby was breathing. I learned Stephen's body language about when he was going to start a line or end a line or put emphasis on particular words. When we sang that third time, my life changed, and so did David's, and so did Stephen's, and so did Joni's. We stopped laughing, and we stopped the song and started laughing after about, honestly, less than a minute of the song in three-part harmony, making our three voices into one voice, and it blew us all away. I realized I would have to go home uh, to England and leave the Hollies, which was a rather successful band leave my equipment, leave my money, I, I had to go and join. I had to. I had to go and follow this sound. You knew right away. At that moment, that was it. No second thoughts, no second guessing, no variable analysis. That's it in that one second. Wow. That was it. And Joni was the only, uh, the only witness to, to, to the very first time CSN ever created music together. You know, you just, you hope to hear stories like that because that is just the magic that we don't see enough in our everyday life. The things that kind of present themselves to you out of the blue. Really, it's a collection of circumstances, isn't it? At the end of the day. It was, it, it was an incredible uh, collision of moments. You know, I mean, you know, because they were, fr they were free and, and I wasn't free, but I knew what I had to do to, to follow this incredible sound that we had just, uh, just discovered. That first the Nash record was, was sunshiny, was light, was acoustic-y kind of, but a really beautiful feeling album. When we got to make Deja Vu, Joan and I were going through a very rocky period in our relationship. Stephen and Judy Collins had broken up, and David uh, uh, was in love with his girlfriend, Christine, but she had been killed in a motor accident, driving her, uh, her cats to the vet, and, and one of the cats jumped on her lap and scratched her, and she turned down to get the cat off and headline into a bus. So the feeling of deja vu was darker. Well, we, were, we were darker at that point, and that's the main uh, emotional difference between the first class we saw the national and Deja Vu, which was our second record with Neil. 
when you're in that experience of going through something on a personal level, which feels heavy, that you have to try to release, it's a very personal thing. But there are rare moments in life where the heaviness that the artist feels resonates deeply with society in, in some capacity. It becomes from a micro to a macro experience. And I think why this album resonated so heavily was, be, was that it initiated from what you were all feeling individually, but it became a soundtrack to how in particular America was feeling in 1969, going into a new decade. And that the 60s ended terribly. Uh, yeah, they didn't really end until, what, 74 when when nixon actually finally was no longer with us this deja vu record as a fan of the record if i can take myself out of being one of those four and look at it as a piece of music as a fan love that i thought it was a fabulous a fabulous record we did have a lot of songs we knew that we were decent writers we knew that we were decent singers the addition of neil made it a completely different band Crosby, Stills & Nash is a different band than Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. How? Can you tell me how, more specifically, w- really what was the distinguishing factors for, for Neil? It was Neil Young. David and Stephen were having dinner in uh, New York with Ahmet Erdogan, who was the CEO uh, of Atlantic Records, dear friend. And halfway through dinner, they were talking about, uh, you know, with, with Ahmet that we just finished the record and we realized that it was probably going to be a hit and therefore we realized that we probably would have to go on the road. But we had a problem. And the problem was a good one, but it was this. Stephen Stills played most of the instruments on the first Crosby, Stills & Nash record. Yes, I played my rhythm on, you know, Lady of the Island and Marrakesh. Uh, David played, of course, on, on Guinevere and, and, and Long Time Gone, etc. But Stephen played lead guitar, rhythm guitar, bass guitar, B3 organ, piano, and percussion. So when, if we're going to go out on the road, what the hell do we do when one of the members played most of the instruments? We have to find someone else, right? So at that dinner that David and Stephen were having with Ahmet, Ahmet said in the middle of dinner, he says, I know who you should get. And so Stephen said, wow, really, Ahmet, who should we get? And he said, you're going to get Neil back. <laughs> now, Stephen is going crazy, you know, because he just gone through a couple of years of madness with, with Neil, you know, not turning up and quitting the band and maybe quitting the band and maybe wanting to do, you know, the Ed Sullivan show, but not turning. It was madness. And we thought that Armut was crazy, but it really made sense. But we had another problem, and that was that I'd never met Neil. And also Neil Young is, you said it beautifully at the beginning, it's Neil Young. It's not Neil Young and the Neil Youngs. It's Neil Young. It's Neil Young. And so I said to the boys, I said, look, before we invite Neil to join this band, I, I, I have to meet him. I don't know whether I can tell him a secret. I don't know whether, you know, he can be my friend. I, I, I know he's great, but I've never met him. I have to meet him before I can invite him with a good heart into this band. I had breakfast with Neil on uh, Bleecker Street here in, uh, in, in the village in New York. And after that uh, breakfast, I would, have, I would have given him the world. He was funny. He was self-deprecating. He was very confident. At the end of the breakfast, I said, look, Neil, tell me one reason why we should invite you into this band. And he looked at me and he said, have you ever heard me and Stephen play guitar together? I said, I have. He said, that's why you want me in this band. And he was right. But I mean, this re-release of Deja Vu, 
I have to give full credit to Patrick Milligan from Rhino and from my best friend in the world, Joel Bernstein, who is a, an archivist uh, uh, for, for many people. He was the guitar man for Neil, for Joni, for Prince. He knows what he's doing. And I think they, they made uh, the re-release of the Deja Vu album incredibly attractive for people with many, many demos and, and different versions and different songs and half songs. We, we thought uh, that Joel and Patrick had done a wonderful job. Listen, I mean, the album's original form remains to this day. It is, it is, it is start to finish a timeless classic. It's the writing and, and, and just whittling the songs down from the many that you had. And now we'll get to hear a lot more outtakes and a lot more things that sort of revolved around the process. But just that original 10-song body of work was like, okay, you know, this is... This is gonna this is gonna stand the test of time forever. But I, I I read somewhere that one of you, maybe it was you, Graham, said you know it was torturous. It was torturous to make. It was difficult. And I wonder, you know, looking back on it now, what what were the significant challenges in in making such a like I said, such a wide open space of a record? But so often those are made from the drywall, you know, where it's really torturous. One of the things that we found out very quickly was just who who Neil wanted to be as as a person. Neil Young uh, is a brilliant musician, obviously. Uh, and one of the things that ma makes him such a brilliant musician is that he physically reacts to the muse of music. And when it's going great, he's right there, 100%. When it's not going great, he's going to turn left on the freeway where everybody else turns right, which happened to him with, with, with the Stills Young album. St they were on tour as a Stills Young band, and uh, Neil turned left and Stephen turned right and they never made another piece of music on that tour. So we knew who, we started to find out who Neil was. I mean, he would take his songs and he would take them to his studio and he would mix them and stuff and then bring them back and have us put our voices on and stuff. And he, he never played a note of music on Our House or on Teachy Children. You know, so it was a very difficult album to do. This was not, it, we didn't become a band like Crosby, Souls and Nash was. It, 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 we became something else and it was painful. I remember at one point when I, I would do a, a mix of, 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 say, Carry On that I loved and everybody loved in the studio when we mixed it. That's the mix, fantastic. We'd go home, we would sleep, we'd come back the next day and the mix was completely redone. I mean, mixes sometimes take hours and hours to get correct. So when you've put all your effort into that and you've got something that you really love and you come back the next day and it's completely different, it doesn't make for a great feeling. And at one point, I looked at Stephen and David and Neil and, I, and we were in the studio park and I said, look, we're blowing this. We're, we're just blowing this. This is not, a, come on. And I, I started to cry. And that's the only time that I've ever cried when I was making music. But that time was very emotionally distressing for me. Because I, I want to get the job done. You want to do all these songs and make a great album? I'm there. Come on, let's go. And I won't quit until it's done. But it was emotionally destroying. People have often referred to you as the glue that, that constantly, or the bridge that constantly tries to keep Crosby, Stills, Nash, or, or the, in the rare occasions, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young in a position where you can serve the, the purpose of the band, serve the, the altar of the music. Indeed, absolutely. As time moves on, how do you sort of rationalize that, that role when you realize that age only 
cements some of these eccentricities and these stubborn behaviors. It doesn't loosen them up, but actually it makes them more resolute. So I wonder how that sort of factors in for you as you continue to live a life in tandem with these people who you love deeply, clearly. I do. I love each one of them, clearly. I do. David and I have hurt each other in, in his last couple of years. You can forgive somebody that has hurt you, but it doesn't mean you have to let them back into your life. I'm almost in, in six months, I'll be 80 years old. I don't want any more negativity in my life. And that's what's going on here. And it's sad. I miss David. I love him dearly. He's a brilliant musician. But some of the things that he does just rub me the wrong way and I can't take it anymore. And that's the last that I say of him. You talked, you know, about how much of a fan of this album you are. And I love that. It's rare in my life, 30 years I've been interviewing and trying to get close to the artistic spirit. How many artists are scared to admit that or just don't feel it? Now I found someone who genuinely loves the body of work that you were a part of. I want to know why. I want to I know what you love about it and why you think it, it stands up today. One day we were at the uh, Wally Hyder Studios in San Francisco and the four of us were staying at a really seedy motel. The Caravan Lodge Motel. <laughs> so listen to this. So that's where we are because it's only a, a, like a, a block from the studio, right? First of all, Neil's got two Bush babies with him. That's right, two Bush babies, Harriet and Speedy. You would knock on Neil's door and it, it would crack it open and you'd see this thing go whoom and jump on his shoulder. And it was Harriet and Speedy, right? That, that, it was a crazy, crazy time. We just had this album to make and we knew that we had the songs and we knew that we could get it done if we could only love each other just a little more. And uh, I, I love the record. I love, I can even remember uh, Crosby putting his voice on uh, Almost Cut My Hair. Well, we had to get him a little drunk to, you know, to, to let go. But uh, Crosby can let go pretty quickly, I'm afraid. <laughs> One of the things that I, that I love about this re-release is the version of Birds, which is a, a Neil Young song, brilliant song. There's a version of it on the record, I don't know whether you've heard it yet, of just me and him and his acoustic guitar. Sing, he's singing the melody, I'm singing the harmony, and he's playing the acoustic guitar. Wow. It's a beautiful take. It's really beautiful. And, and even though I, I made it with Neil... I, I, it, it's beautiful, and it, and it thrills me even to this day to, to, to listen to it. Stephen, can you hear me? Hello. This album, Deja Vu, it's funny, you dive in there. Let's just start there. You know, this, this album, Earmarked the 60s, it bookended it, and the whole thing was like, this is going to be great, and then at the end of the 60s, it's like, oh, it's not, and then no. this album comes out. <laughs> And, and I want to know sort of how that experience was recording this album, having had such success the first time around and, and knowing that, wow, you're entering into a new decade and everything is not as we'd hoped it would, it would be. The death knell was Altamont. It's like after you could experience that and not know this didn't work, uh, you, perp, you weren't paying attention. And uh, that, was, that, that was the sad part of it is we, we kind of weren't, you know, we were sort of resting in our laurels. and. Uh, you know, having, you know, at least, you know, the anti-war movement was emerging and gathering strength and and so on. And it just, uh, with Nixon on the horizon and stuff, 
I don't know. It's like the songs really saved us because they were somehow really great. And but our personal lives and our emergence into the soft, you know, trying not to suffer from the sophomore jinx in the studio. I mean, we were great at that, but nothing else. <laughs> it was like our our work, our lives were a complete shambles. <laughs> That's been documented as well, you know, that, that you were all going through your own personal and individual crises at that point, from relationships to tragedy. There was a lot going on around that time. Did you feel propelled to, into making a record after the success of Crosby, Stills & Nash, or did you want to make a record to deal with those situations? You know, well, Graham and I were talking about it, we, uh, and we realized that we had just enough great songs to really start, and we would feed off of those into creating some new ones. And that particular part of it was the only bit of sanity about the whole time. <laughs> it was it was nuts. You know, in that first, you know, we were peaking celebrity-wise, which I hate to even admit, but it's like, uh, and there were cliques forming around each one of us and, you know, all, all the ingenerate, you know, problems that can happen within bands. When you think about, the formation of the group, Graham told a beautiful story about the moment when you all sang together and Joni was the only other witness in the room, according to him, and you all just burst out laughing because you knew that kind of everything had changed from that moment when you first harmonized with each other. And it was just such an immediate thing. That's all true except the locale. It was actually at Cass's house the day before. And Cass was the only witness. I wouldn't have sung in front of Johnny Mitchell if you paid me a million dollars cold like that. <laughs> that, I can assure you, that's one. I but I, I, I have this smellophonic memory of it. I mean, it's, it's so vivid. And, uh, and so we were constantly having this argument about where did we sing first, you know. And I went to Johnny's the next day with Elliot. And that's when we were all at the dining room at the you know at the kitchen table with the ladder back chairs but the day before we'd been at Cass's and I found this really wonderful a little corner at her dining room table that was had stucco walls behind it and so when Graham joined in it was like you know it just it was like a mushroom cloud going off. It was wonderful. Did you know that it was going to lead to that kind of celebrity, that kind of attention? Because each of you had been in very notable groups. I mean, each of you were coming out of something that, that others would have considered success. But of course, this led to exponentially more success. When did you realize like, okay, our lives are going to change, not just from a creative point of view, but from a uh, public awareness point of view, just we're going to get sucked into this thing that artists get sucked into, where we're the only thing that matters right now. And I can say that. I don't know. We got chased once. <laughs> I suppose that was a clue. Um, where was that? I don't know. I think David and I at an airport, but I'm not sure. It's that we sort of remember these things vaguely, but not with any specificity. So <laughs> We're doing a bit. You could just still be the most humble man in, on the planet and decide that you just don't really want to remember the one time you were chased down the street by a bunch of screaming teenagers, which I 100% respect as well. Yes, well, that would be more, more in keeping with me. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. On the first album, you had you know, recorded and done a lot of the playing and really had led the process according to, you know, to, to, to articles I've read and 
and what I've seen and heard on the record. Um, this time around, it was it was slightly different. How was that sort of process of moving into the second album, but not being quite so at the helm, and also with Neil coming in as well, who you knew well, but that's another that's adding to the dynamic. All of that is, uh, but you know, pretty much logically. I remember Graham and I, we were, you know, David was, you know, grief stricken and, and you know not quite ready to come in, and Graham and I were at Wally Hyder's up in San Francisco you know, which was in the Tenderloin district. And we were staying in this awful hotel about three blocks later. You know, we were still Hugh doing Louie and finishing each other's sentences. He says, you know, we need it. I said, an opener. And I went, and I said, I've got an idea. We'll see how it comes to fruition. And I went up to my room and he said, well, I'll be right there if, uh, if you need me. I went up to my room and this lick shows up and boom, Carry On was born. And so we did that one pretty much in the style that we recorded the first album because it was only the two of us. Neil was busy with something. And so it was Dallas and me and, and Graham and David in the booth. And they were marvelous at pulling stuff out of me and, and affirmations and stuff. You know, they were often shocked by what I came up with, which I found wonderfully, you know, a wonderful confidence booster. But uh, the next vivid memory cut to... Record plant Sausalito and Neil has shown up with Ohio. And he walked in and he starts playing it and said, and we just did it all together. And I really had an easy assignment and just played the guitar. And the scale that I picked, like magically worked straight off the bat. Because I was like playing in a different key than the song was. And it somehow it was a mistake, but actually it wasn't, it was jazz. And I heard a story that that song came out almost immediately after it was recorded as well. Oh, yes. We killed another single to get it out. You know, I think uh, Our House or something of Graham's, which was doing terrifically. And we just mowed it down. Back then, you could bump something off the chart by releasing a different track. And whereas now everything is going all the time. So it strikes me that you've always had a deep curiosity on how we can make things better or why things don't work, and you're dedicated to highlighting that. Did you always have that within you, or did that come with the music? Will you always have a fighting spirit in you? Well, it's historic amongst our family. My my aunt was a history professor, and uh, there's that, and political activism in the back of my family back in the FDR days. But uh, I'll put it down to being infatuated with Joan Baez when I was a teenager. <laughs> And uh, having marvelous history teacher in the 10th grade. And it sort of all blossomed at the same time. And it carried on into my music. I mean, it wasn't so much I felt it was a duty or such. It was just things would strike me. And when they did, when those songs strike you that you're not thinking about, how does that feel? You know, like in Ohio, the way it lands and you just know, like it should it should be a mistake, but it's perfect. And there's something magic about the making of music that I'm sure you've experienced time and time again when you're in balance. You know what I mean? How does that feel when something just lands and you know that really you're just a conduit for it? Well, it feels like you're not going to fall down because you're in balance. And, and you can't really dwell on that. You can't feel yet you got to put all the feelings into the performance. And then right, right, right. Laugh, laugh, later it can strike you, you know, and you get goosebump in your own stuff, which is vain and 
they to the extreme. So I'm looking at some of the demos here on this expanded edition, and there were songs that that, that you end, that ended up coming up in live performance, like "No, You've Got to Run," uh, "She Can't Handle It." These are some of the songs that didn't make it into the final track listing of Deja Vu in its original form. How did that play out amongst the four of you, trying to fi- figure out what goes where and what makes it and what doesn't? That declaration that didn't make the cut out of Deja Vu is misleading because those songs weren't even finished yet. And a lot of them turned into other songs. And they're called outtakes for a reason. It's like, not there yet, let's discard that and start again. You know, I sort of appreciate the craftsmanship a little bit more. I mean, I'm sure it's great for the fans and everything, but sometimes, you know, it's like, no, I worked really hard on that and got it to come out, you know, a different way. But and this is sort of, out halfway out of tune and uh, and you're not confident in the phrasing and things like that. And so, you know, that's why I'm not a big fan of these kinds of records, you know, the outtakes sort of stuff. It becomes something that's archival and that, that some people feel should be heard because it exists, right? What you're saying is just because it exists doesn't necessarily mean it should be heard. That is exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> you know, although we can be our own worst editors, you know, there's, there's a discretion involved. Different strokes for different folks. It's like, that's why, you know, go ahead and have that, you know, be curious and stuff. But uh, to me, the beauty of the, of the finished product, of all the songs, there's not a dog in the bunch. And it's just really, really fabulous, you know. And David, everybody shows their genius, you know, David's genius and Graham's genius and Neil's. And, you know, and I'm puttering along the back trying to keep up. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm known for being pretty bold and, you know, and confident, but it's a front. <laughs> I think that's a really beautiful observation because I think so much of the desire to invent through art and to present your best self through art is ultimately distracting from the core insecurities and fears and the fractures in the system, right? That is the trade. That goes into wanting to create art in the first place and the need to have a different form of communication other than just be speaking, you know, which you're very good at. And I'm sort of, you know, trying to avoid saying, you know, <laughs> so like, you know, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> that kind of wasted adverbs and stuff. <laughs> but at least, you know, <laughs> the one thing about being in lockdown is I managed to lower the stress in my life to almost almost invisible and uh, really enjoyed it. And that's all that frenetic activity that I was engaged in before. It's like, to me, it's like luggage. And I'm much more relaxed and even tempered. If you can ask anyone in my family, and uh, and you know, quite happy. So the interviews aren't so nerve wracking for me anymore. You talked about the frantic energy and 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 all the frenetic sort of part. This is the life that gets built out of following your dreams, becoming successful, gaining attention, and then like, oh, okay, it's all coming at me right now. I don't know how to process this. And I saw that on your face, side of stage, Wembley Stadium, when I was looking at a video of a show that you did. CSMY and everyone else was sort of smoking weed and hanging out and you were literally like 
Yeah. And I could see it was different for you than it was for the others, it felt like. Well, I wasn't aware of it at the time. I, I actually saw the film of myself and I was talking incredibly fast and moving incredibly fast. And everything was, everything had been sped up. And I went, we're wrecking this show. So I'm in a panic while I'm trying to carry on. And there's, it's King Wembley, and they're out there, and it's lovely, and there's a sunshiny day in Britain. And, you know, and it's like, what are we doing? And Jeff Beck actually gave us the best review. He said, there was this terrible band on stage, and then I looked closer, and it was them. <laughs> Which was so pure and honest and true. <laughs> And, you know, I'd recently moved there and fallen in love with Britain and having a great time making friends with all those wonderful musicians and everything. And <laughs> good old Jeff, you know, just Occam's razor, right? But it's not fair because you've got 80,000 people in literally, a, the, the, you know, the modern Colosseum. I mean, it's it's like exactly. in any other time, there would have been there would have been human beings fighting one another or, or doing something horrendous hundreds of years prior. It's that kind of environment of just tens of thousands of people. And, and you're on this stage now, which is probably a, a middle stage in the middle of the crowd for mixing these days. Actually, au contraire, it was huge. It was really great size. Yeah, I could move quite quite easily. I just, I loved the gig. I loved the gig. Everything was perfect. And then we sucked, <laughs> at least to my mind. And, and for sure, it was borne out when I listened to the tapes later. But I mean, that happened, you know. The band were great. So I think about, you know, the the roller coaster of, of CSN, CSNY, the playing, the touring, the times in between, and, and the way that it all wraps up into one big experience. And I know that there have been some really tough times and tough times for you personally, from a friendship point of view, as well as just trying to get the creative sort of thing off the road. When you think about it as one overall experience, what you know, what are the sort of key emotions or the key observations for you that really sum up this this part of your life that you've spent with these with these individuals making these songs? Well, it was marvelous actually. If we if we would have kept the the circle in violet, you know? I mean, really, just, you know, we we'd imploded instead of exploded. And you know, really drawn from each other. If we'd kept that going, it would have been far more comfortable. And as it was, you know, Graham and I put a brave face on it for the longest time. But, uh, and then eventually I became irritating and then everything became irritating. Plus at that time I was recording all over the place, you know, I was doing something for a solo and something for this. And so that's, that's why there's a couple of the songs on there that were actually intended for solo albums, so. You know, no harm, no foul. I'm proud of the guys that put it together of Joel and, and Graham was the driving force, really. It's beautiful to celebrate something like like an album, which to your point and you're right, it's it's perfection, really. It's start to finish perfection. And and those kind of albums come around very rarely where everybody is just playing the perfect part. And I and I do think that this album, if you put it on now, so much of what's being said resonate and will continue to resonate no matter how much there is change. So my last question for you is, do you ever listen to it? Do you ever sort of think about, wow, these things that we said subconsciously or consciously continue to attach themselves to these moments in time? Well, actually, I tend not to listen for several years after 
we've done it, you know, because then I'll want to go back and work on it. (laughs) If a decade later it's still resonating, you've gone, ah, now we've fulfilled our purpose there. And that it's 50 years later, and I can still remember it, let alone feel that it's somewhat profound. It's really a gift, you know, it's like somewhat of an accident, really. But at the same time, you've got to get out of the way of your own accident so they can bear fruit. Hey, David Crosby. Hello there. Before we even get started into, uh, you know, the 50, 51, 52-year anniversary of Deja Vu, the Caesars celebration of the album that came out in 69, I want to talk to you about, just quickly, I just want to say that I, I think the last... Well, all your music, but in particular, the last sort of three albums you've put out have been so incredibly moving to me. You know, here, if you listen, got it on vinyl. Sky Trails, got it on vinyl. Just love those records and love the music you've been making. Oh, thank you, man. Wow. I think it's kind of amazing that it did that many that fast. But And I've got another one. Really? So it's finished? Yeah, finished, mastered, ready to go. The only reason it's not out now is that uh, there's some kind of holdup on vinyl. Can you tell me what it's called? For free and it's called that after uh, the, I recorded Joni's for free again. That's the third time I've done it. And this time it's a duet with uh, Sarah Jarose. It's kind of amazing. I, I think you're going to love it. It's, it's an amazing record, man. A bunch of really crazy shit happened. You know, I've been uh, on James's case for a long time to write us a hit. He finally did. And he didn't have the second verse. So he, we'd asked Michael McDonald to come and uh, sing on the choruses. He said, well, let me take a, a shot at the second verse. He wrote a great second verse. So he co-wrote that one with us and sang on it, and it's really astounding. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to love it. Are you kidding? I'm going to love it. It's funny. I spoke to Michael McDonald earlier this year, and we were talking about Steely Dan, and, and of course, he was saying, he's like, they're just my favorite band. Like, when I landed in their band, I was like, oh, my God, I'm in my favorite band. Like, how did this happen? How, you know? And then it sort of imploded before he got a chance to really love it. And I guess in a weird way, David, there's a bit of a parallel there with you and the fellas in, in, in that sort of 1.0 around the self-titled album into Deja Vu that you probably found yourself in your favorite band, and then it sort of came to this abrupt end before you know you got to start again and and it's been like that for a while well bands are like that man bands are like marriages you know you people don't go in parallel lines right they're always either converging or diverging bands are like a marriage you get into it you're very excited it's you're thrilled with each other's music you really love the process you're having a blast but after you've been with somebody for 40 years you know you rub them the wrong way they rub you the wrong way there's lots of gripe it happens in every single relationship I've ever seen, every band that I've ever seen. So I'm not I'm not surprised it went that way. I'm all, I'm all cool with it. We did some really good work. You know, this very extensive re-release of Deja Vu with a whole lot of outtakes, really interesting. And so how do you sort of feel about kind of putting this all together? It's very interesting to see what some of the potential other tunes could have been. I think it gives you context for, for the songs that we did put on the record. In, in the bottom line, man, that, that band is all about songs. The reason we wanted Neil in the band was not his guitar playing, not his singing, not you know that he was nice or anything. It was those songs. He writes really good songs. Um, and still, you know, who is the best of us, without any question, best songwriter, best guitar player, best singer, loved his songs. And so did I. When we were trying to find, figure out if we wanted him in the band or not, Graham didn't want him in the band. Stephen did, and it was sort of up to me. And I, he sat down and sang me those songs, man. I, I heard Helpless. I said, I want this guy in the band. When you have too much of a good thing, right? And that is possible. You have four players just writing their best work at, the, at that moment, just incredible, just peaking. 
And then you get it down to like however many songs are on that record. Like that is a, that's a gift and a problem, right? I mean, it must be tough to be able to whittle that down. How was that process? It was very difficult, but we did it. Uh, we, we were pretty honest with each other. We would listen to each other's songs and a song would either move you or it wouldn't. Neil sang it's helpless. We, we knew what to do. It was a wonderful song. Stills, man, you can't mistake it. He, he comes with Carry On, and, and you, you just go, oh, shit, I'm glad I'm in a band with this guy. The more time passes and the, and the more distant all of that is from me, the more I love Stephen Stills, man. That guy just kicks ass. He said to me something interesting yesterday. He said that you and Graham were always quick to encourage him and that that confidence really rubbed off on him and he appreciated it at the time, which made me think that perhaps, you know, he was to your point, the best, and that was your quote, the best of you, but perhaps was the one who who knew it the least. I think that's true. He grew up with a, a literal musical genius inside him, but it, but it was all difficult for him because that's, that's the kind of person he is. Us loving his music was one of the main affirmations in his life because we did it so completely and so thoroughly, and we proved it. We didn't just talk it. We worked on his that was probably, you know, one of the first times in his life that uh, that there was a clean affirmation of, of what he could do by other people. And and I'm absolutely proud that we did it because he deserved it, man. The guy, wow, is he good. There's this beautiful trade. It all comes down to this beautiful trade of of you get to create and you go through a process and a realization of, of something. And then we get to apply it to our life. And we get to love it and own it ourselves, and it becomes like that to us. Yeah. But often, as fans, we don't realize the pain and the and the and the challenges that go into the first part of that trade. And I think it's it's really come to light over the years that it was a very tough time for each of you, and a particularly tough time for you because you were going through a process of grieving, weren't you? Yeah, I was still in shock, man. It had just happened. I mean, she'd just been killed, and I. You know, I had nothing in my life to prepare me for that. I had no way to deal with it. I didn't, I'm not some kind of hero or something. I, I just sat down on the floor and cried. I didn't know what else to do. But, you know, music is the main thing in my life. And it got me through. Working with those guys on that record and on my first solo record afterwards saved my life. Each of the fellas said a very similar thing. That for all of the, t- the tough times of making Deja Vu, that it really was kind of a life-saving experience. That the music saved yeah everybody individually. Everyone plays a really valid role in anything that involves chemistry or the human experience. What was your role in CSNY? What, what, and ultimately, what is your role ongoing in that band, do you think? My role, you know, was a spark plug and court jester, you know, fiery, inventive, goofy, certainly not grown up. I have never been accused of being a grown up. <laughs> but, uh, but I was, you know, I brought a, a very strange chord sense from being, you know, from liking jazz. And I, I brought, uh, as did we all, a completely different flavor of songs. That's why the CSNY was so strong in making records, man, because we had four good writers and all of us write completely different from each other. That makes, that makes a good record. You know, I think on the first record, the general feeling, and I could be wrong, was that, you know, with Stephen's guidance, you know, it was the three of you really kind of working on something together and trying to figure it all out. You know, we all know that Neil Young, and it's very well established now that Neil Young is a ghost cat. He's a snow leopard. He does his thing, right? He's very much on his path. And so in this rare moment where he's absorbed into this band post-Buffalo Springfield, and it's this beautiful, harmonious family thing, you still got to figure this 
new guy out, even though you know him. How was that when he's really the only one who knows who he is? <laughs> it was interesting. <laughs> Neil's an interesting guy, but he's driven by the same things we are. He loves song. He loves music. He loves to sing and play. That part, is, there's no complexity. There's no tricks. There's no weirdness at all. He is a musician. He loves it. As soon as his fingers touched the guitar strings, we were talking to each other really well. There's a, the chemistry in that band when we were playing was excellent. We were, we were listening to each other. And we could spark each other easily. I could go over to Neil Man in the middle of a tune and make three hits on backbeats at the right time and, and straighten him up like I'd put a rod of fire up his butt. I, I could get his attention heavily by doing the right thing at the right time. And he could do the exact same thing. I'd be in the middle of singing a phrase and he'd crown out over it with the lead guitar right in front of me laughing. And it would be a moment, you know, we would both wind up laughing in the middle of the song because we had just really, really screwed it down tight. And uh, that's where the relationship was. It wasn't social. You know, when we went on tour, man, he didn't ride in the bus with us. He had his own, you know, his own driver, his own scene. He didn't even, he didn't hang out with us. And was that, was that okay with everybody? Or was that tough for some people? It's tough for some people, you know, they want, you want other people to do, be like you and he's not. I, I was fine with it. I wanted him to be happy because when he's happy, he makes really good music. I was going to ask you what the other 20 of two hours of the day were like because I've got this theory about bands. I'm not, I'm not telling you. <laughs> <laughs> that's, why I said, that's why I said I was going to ask. That was my way of asking without asking at all. That's, a, that's an old school technique. Um, <laughs> you know what? Though, I was talking to someone about this yesterday. I have this theory about bands. I feel like in the 60s, bands were infants. If you put the concept of a band into one human being and the life cycle of a human being, being in a band, you knew as much as a child does. There was no actual roadmap or book or anything you could truly understand because you were kind of first through the door. It's the, your first steps, right? Now we're 50, 60 years into it. That band as a human life cycle is older, wiser, knows what to do, what not to do, knows how to maintain a balance in life and not get frustrated by the things they did when they were toddlers in the 60s. Do you know where I'm going with this? Yeah, that, that works for people. It doesn't really work for bands. Man. Relationships don't last real well. Uh, I got no beef with them. I love all three of them, and I'm proud to have been in that band, and I love it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to go back. I wouldn't want to try to do it again. That album came out in 69, you know, and I mentioned this to, to the other fellas as well. It was the end of, of what was sort of this idyllic dream of what, of what could be within, from a society inside out. And then it was like, oh, that's kind of backfired or, or gone inside or completely you know, folded. And then this record comes out and I feel like it's, it's a bit of a punk rock record in its own way. What, what was the sort of general feeling about what you were seeing outside the studio when you were making that record? Well, it was us against them, man. We were we were politically liberal and and anti-racist and anti, you know, authoritarian. We were always, you know, anti-authority. And we were looking at a what we thought looked like a really tough world. We hadn't seen Trump yet. We didn't know how bad it could get. But it looked pretty bad to us, civil rights, stuff like that. We and we were very strongly anti-war. When you took that message on the road and started playing stadiums, did you, was it translating to that many people, or was it? Did, yes, did you, to, well, to our audience, yes. Our audience is a bunch of hippies, and they felt the same way we did. Make love, not war. I've watched some of those stadium shows, and it's amazing. It, it always almost felt improv at times. Those shows, 
you know, in front of that many people that, that you were sort of relying on the chemistry as much as you were relying on your chops? We could. We absolutely could. And yeah, we did take a lot of chances. There were, we don't, I don't think we ever played anything the same twice. And that, that kept, it, kept it really exciting for us. Some tough shows too, though? Shows where you were like, wow, it's all falling apart? Our, the worst thing we did as a show with CSNY was play for four hours in Seattle on the first night of a tour and completely blow our throats. <laughs> <laughs> Just because you're having too much fun. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you know? And all four of you agreed with that? Or was somebody like, we're going to keep going? Like, <laughs> We didn't, you know, we just kept going. We didn't even talk about it. We just, hey, let's do. And we did it. We weren't thinking. Somebody told us we've been on for four hours and we better get the f*** off. What's one of the prevailing and fondest memories you have of making the record? Something that really, you know, springs to mind when you're sort of reflecting on, on that time. Individual songs did that to me. When you pull off a song like Carry On, you can't help feeling like you you really did something good, you know. The record, making the record was not a joy for me, man. I was, I was miserable. I was crying. I was shot down real hard. I, I, the records, you know, kept me alive. But I, I was not having fun. It was not a fun time for me at all. What role did success sort of play in, in sort of establishing the way you lived your life at that moment in time? Because Nearly destroyed it. Yeah, because that album went on to millions and millions of records. And you're playing in front of 80,000 people. I mean, you, you're probably the biggest band in the world. The problem is the money. When you have a lot of money and you're young, you're foolish, you're stupid, you do a lot of dumb things with the money. We all did a lot of drugs. And that was a stupid thing to do. Some drugs are really relatively innocent. If we'd stuck with pot, we would have been okay. The other stuff, you know, it destroys you and it did us just like it does everybody. And the crazy thing is it still does. And this is the maddest thing about it. So so we people used to talk about that like in relation to decades, right? They would try and frame each drug around a decade or a time or a social re revolution of some description. I think it's deeper than that, right? There's something in the human spirit that is like the deep distraction is in all of us. We like getting high. Human beings always have. That's why we learned how to distill, how we learned how to, to, to make wine, how to brew beer. We, we invented all that stuff because we like it. Uh, that's why we ate every nut and berry in the, in the jungle to see which ones would get us loopy. And whenever we found one that did, we ate it uh, repeatedly, you know, it became a sacrament in our local religion, whatever. Uh, human beings always have. Some stuff will destroy you. Opiates will destroy you. Cocaine will destroy you. Speed will destroy you. Those are hard drugs, and they and they will kill you. So you know we're celebrating this uh, nice extended anniversary of Deja Vu, this album, which really has changed millions of people's lives. How do people relate that record to you over time? Like, what what are some of the observations that people make about that record that really make you feel warm and and, and great after the fact? They tell you that they got married to your song, or they they were playing your song while they they birthed their first baby. Or they, this song they play, they want to play at their funeral, or this song they played at their mother's funeral. It's almost always an individual song that has just broken through completely to them. You know, songs are a wonderful thing, man. You take an idea in words and you put it in a musical context. And what happens with human beings, man, is that there's so much data impinging on your senses that you filter it down. You censor the the total amount of data that's coming at you, right? You have sensors that sort of block out stuff that you don't think is necessary, right? You're looking at the center of the picture, and you're not really looking at the rest of it. Well, when you encase an idea in a musical context, it goes right past the sensors and way deep, and the words explode way in. They don't get filtered out right at the surface. 
It's a different experience. That's what that's what music does with words. It takes them in way deeper. And that's our magic. Most people don't really know that's what's going on, but it is. And and it's an absolute magic. We can reach you and take you on a voyage, take you on a little trip, make you feel something, make you feel something good. It is the gift we were given. And it's our responsibility to stay true to it, not just use it to make money, not profane it to fuck with people. Use it to, to elevate, use it to, to advance, use it to, to educate, use it to alleviate, use it to make people feel like there are other people out in the world who give a shit. Not enough time, nowhere near it to be able to really do that justice, but hopefully you enjoyed it. Graham Nash, Stephen Stills, David Crosby, aka Crosby, Stills and Nash, talking about the CSMY classic Deja Vu, amongst other things. You know the deal, if you haven't done it yet, please add a rating or a comment and subscribe to this podcast and we will be back next week. All right, take care.